0: and gentlemen welcome to our next guest is hello and welcome to another our next guest is this is a conversation where we meet the country's leading speakers and entertainers in the corporate and events world and we find out what makes them tick my name is michael pope and i'm here with carson white as usual from leading voice carson who is our next guest
1: Our next guest is a social entrepreneur, movement maker and globally renowned humanitarian on a mission to inspire and transform organisations into purpose driven, sustainable businesses. She is also a radiation oncologist with extensive experience working with everyone from the terminally ill to the Australian swim team. She has been recognised with countless awards. Most notably, she was awarded an Order of Australia in 2019 for Distinguished Service to Community Health and also in that year, named Melbourneian of the Year. Oh, and I I have been told from a reliable source, she's an amazing parallel parker and makes an (laughs) awesome pavlova. Our next guest is Dr. Bronwyn King.
2: Thanks so much for having me, guys. Yes, someone's been telling me all your secrets.
1: Yeah. The other well, way around.
2: Someone's been telling you all my all secrets. All your
1: secrets. We do our deep dive research here uh, at our next guest is, and, and that was what we came up with. Welcome.
2: Well, it, it is true. Thanks for having me.
0: Welcome, doctor. Can I call you doctor or is you Bronwyn? You can okay? Oh,
2: no, Bronwyn is fine. Bronwyn is fine.
0: Well, let's jump in and, and recognising your medical background, what do you advise would be the the most appropriate number of eggs for a good pavlova? <laughs>
2: oh my gosh you know what medicine is easy compared to pavlova making (laughs) um yeah absolutely look it took me about a year to to master the pavlova I had five disasters and number six worked out so of course I like the scientist that my brain is I wrote down the exact exact things I did everything to the second
0: all right thank you well Our time is up. Thank you very much. (laughs) So so seriously, this scientific brain has always been there. Did you go straight from school and uni into medicine?
2: I did. I did. Um, Look, I I started my, um, you know, my early teenage years, really, I was a swimmer. That was the main thing that was the focus of my life. And so I learned an awful lot about sort of physical health and I was absolutely fascinated in the gym when I was swimming training and trying to work out which muscles needed to be stronger to make me mm-hmm. swim faster, and that really inspired my interest of medicine. So I, um, after I finished Year 12, I was very happy to start medicine straight away, mm. and, um, and I actually thought my whole career was going to be uh, a full-time doctor.
1: So with your swimming, um, how did you, uh, what happened there, just quickly?
2: So with swimming, so I was a very nice junior swimmer I had aspirations to be an Olympic champion like probably most young Australian swimmers do have. Um, I think it's just such an amazing sport and a great history for the country. Unfortunately, I got a very bad shoulder injury when I was 16 years old. And at that time, I really thought my life was over. I really Mm. did. I thought, you know, the, the only thing that I'm any good at has been taken away from me. And I did have all sorts of sports medicine treatment for many years, but I could never get back in the water. Um, So for me, it was was a lesson about how to take all of the skills and all the knowledge and all the experience that I'd had being involved in elite sport, you know, the ups, the downs and all of the sideways paths that you end up on, take all of those learnings and transfer that into a completely uh, different field and see if I could turn that into success as well.
0: So, which you clearly did. Where did you specialise within medicine?
2: Eventually, I ended up becoming a radiation oncologist. But in my training, I took all of my annual leave and a bit more to work as a team doctor with the Australian swimming team. And that gave me some very unique experiences that I still use to this day. Um, mm. you know, it was an incredible thing working with a team of that nature, a true high performance team in the international setting, um, seeing swimmers, seeing swimmers that I got to know on junior teams. So the very first teams I went on as a doctor, we had a girl called Jessica Shipper, Stephanie Rice, maybe Lenton.
0: Yeah.
2: They were all on my first team and they weren't well-known people. They were great junior swimmers. And um, it was absolutely magnificent to watch them develop over the years and make not just the major teams but suddenly become uh, Olympic champions and break world records. Mm. And it really changed the way I thought about what was possible and impossible in this world because I knew the times that they were swimming. I had been a swimmer so I really knew what they were up against and Mm. um, I'd always thought the world records were as fast as people could go. I thought that was it. I thought that was the limit And, uh, and suddenly right in front of my eyes I saw swimmers do things that no one had ever done before right in front of my own eyes. And it really changed my view of the word impossible. And if I was the prime minister, I'd like to ban the use of the word impossible (laughs) unless, unless you have a time clause with it. Because if you say to me, you know, it's impossible to do something today, I will accept that. But I think we really need to rethink if you're just saying it's impossible. Yeah.
0: Because it probably
2: isn't. It's probably just that no one's done it yet.
0: Was it emotionally difficult for you to be around those girls knowing that you were one of them until that Olympic dream was robbed by that injury?
2: I think, um, I think I'd sort of moved on and accepted that that was no longer going to be part of, um, you know, part of my life personally. Right. But I think one of the great things about being part of the Australian swimming team is that you really feel part of the team. And so the wins, even though, of course, are individual in those individual events, you feel them as a team which also, you know, really was a great lesson for me in terms of anything that you're trying to achieve, you know, whatever it is in business, in government, in, you know, in your own personal pursuits. There might be one person out the front leading and there might be one person who gets the accolades, but it's very rare that they're doing it on their own. Um, Anything truly magnificent requires a team and every member of that team is valuable and every member of that team, you know, really needs to get part of the, um, you know, part of the accolades themselves.
1: And so from that time working with the Australian swim team, what was the most memorable moment you had? And I imagine there would have been a lot. What was the most memorable moment if there is
0: one?
2: Mm, I'd probably say uh, for the Melbourne Commonwealth Games, watching Liesl Jones uh, win the 100-metre breaststroke in a phenomenal time that was just it, 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 just wasn't, it, it just wasn't possible for that yeah. to happen. Um, it wasn't to just watch her do it. That's the thing. Beforehand, it just seemed impossible and then there she was and I just saw her do it with my own eyes. I'd wow. say another time would have been watching, um, watching uh, a junior Australian swimming team compete in Hawaii and it was the, boy, the boys' four-by-100-metre freestyle relay and Australia decided to enter two teams. And we had one team that was clearly better than the other on paper. But it turned out that over in the two days leading up to the competition, the coaches really, really tried to make the B team believe that they could win. And they used all of these very clever, fancy techniques.
0: Did they, did they, like, change hats with the letters A and B on the top of them? Did, is that kind of <gasps> sneaky stuff?
2: I don't know if it was sophisticated. as sophisticated as that, but they were just phenomenal, egging on this team, making them believe it. And, uh, and on the night, the B team just edged out the A team. And they shouldn't have been within five seconds of them. It shouldn't wow. have been remotely... Uh, it, it just shouldn't have played out like that. And yet again, it was a, such a great example of how sometimes um, to achieve really great things it's not just what's on paper it's not just the science but there's a bit of an art to it as well and um, it's such a a, you know a great lesson for anyone trying to do something is you know the belief has to be there that 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 it can be done
0: Absolutely. Carson, I tell you what, Bronwyn is a fantastic interviewee. She's just answering questions, but she's dropping us all these nuggets as she goes, whether it's there's no such thing as impossible, uh, everyone is in a team, et cetera, et cetera. So, Bronwyn, tell us that transition then from from a a young sports person into medicine into then presenting on stage. How did that go?
2: Well, it actually happened Um, by accident really and it was as i said i was planning to live out my life as a doctor i was specialized as a radiation oncologist i was working at the peter mccallum cancer center in melbourne and just by accident i had this extraordinary moment in my life that changed my life forever and that was that i found out by accident that my super fund now, don't let me, don't, don't let your listeners just tune out here because I know superannuation is possibly <laughs> the most boring thing known to mankind, but I found out by accident that my super fund was investing my money in tobacco companies. Right. Now, I was a cancer doctor. One third of all cancers <laughs> are caused by tobacco. And I had watched people die, not just people, I'd watched hundreds of people die from yeah. tobacco. I had, you know, I had... Um, sympathized with families and I had called people in to rush in to say goodbye to their 50 year old brother or their 48 year old mum to say goodbye to them because they'd been suffering from tobacco and then I find out that my own money is invested in the companies that make the products that are killing them it just made no sense and so that was about 10 years ago and look I haven't actually slept since then because it was just (laughs) such an uncomfortable (laughs) discovery and what happened then was I started really what turned into you know, my next career, which was I worked at the time with the finance sector and now I work with the finance sector globally. So by that I mean I work with finance leaders, so CEOs, chief investment officers, finance professionals in not just the superannuation industry but also in banking, in insurance, in funds management, in any aspect of finance and I ask them to rethink the purpose of their business, mm. to rethink the concept of not just tobacco but sustainability in general i ask them look what are they doing why are they doing it and really what is the impact of their business on the world and i think that we're at this really interesting point in time where these conversations are becoming more and more common in the business community it's not just enough to say i do x when you have y impact on the community you yeah. are accountable for the why <laughs> and you're accountable for what impact you have not just socially but environmentally um, and on the world in general so very challenging conversations to have indeed yep.
0: on your website bronwynking.com you've got fantastic short videos of yourself telling stories and one exactly on point what you're talking about now is the l'oreal story about yes. having a second ceo explain that
2: Oh, I just think that's fascinating. So I met a man um, who, very senior executive who worked for L'Oreal and he told this story and he said that about 20 years ago he went to the CEO of L'Oreal and he said, I would like to be the CEO. (laughs) And the actual CEO looked at him and said, you know, what on earth do you mean? I'm the CEO. And he said, no, 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 I want to be the chief ethics officer, the other CEO because what L'Oreal was doing at the time was a lot of animal testing and there was a huge community outcry over the impact that their products and their testing and their business model was having on animals and that was obviously a really bad look for the community yet people wanted L'Oreal products so Mm. the products themselves were good but they had this they had this conflict and um, the CEO the real CEO was very um, impressed by the boldness of this young man and in fact Did appoint him, he did become the CEO. And since then, L'Oreal has had two CEOs, one of them being the Chief Ethics Officer, and they've won all sorts of awards for being one of the world's most ethical and sustainable companies ever since. I think it's a great time for all companies to be thinking is is it time for every company to have two CEOs? I personally think it probably is. You don't have to call them that. But if you haven't got... You don't have to
0: pay them as much as that either.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Well, maybe you should. Maybe you should. Because the truth is that if you don't embed purpose, responsibility, sustainability, transparency into the DNA of your business today, I think that your future is very, very uh, risky. And I think that the community is going to call upon you to reassess that. So I encourage people to get on the front foot, have these conversations now, and, um, and really make sure that their DNA has got sustainability in it.
1: So you said that you've, uh, 10 years ago, you started this journey after you met with your Superfund guy. So what's changed in the last 10 years? You just talked about ethics and the, with the L'Oreal example. What's changed for you?
2: Well, I mean, in terms of the work, so for our work, we, um, we asked the finance sector to disengage with tobacco and the, the real highlight of our work is our flagship initiative. It's called the Tobacco-Free Finance Pledge and we launched that pledge at United Nations headquarters in um, 2018. Now, I had all of these great ideas about how we were going to have this event at the UN and I was mm-hmm. very lucky. I got three different UN agencies to agree to, to be part of it And I was getting all very excited. This is about nine months out and we're having this big phone call internationally with all these key players who are going to help us put it on. And I was saying, oh, it's going to be amazing. We're going to have this event at the UN. It's going to be really big. And one of the heads of one of the UN agencies said to me, oh, you do realise, Bronwyn, if you're going to have an event at the United Nations, you need to have at least one prime minister and one president sign off on your event. (laughs) (laughs) Up until that point, I did not know that I needed a president and a <laughs> prime minister to sign off on my event. But Is there um, a president for under-16 swimming? Uh, well, you, you know what? You know what? A whole stack of miracles occurred. A whole stack of technically impossible things occurred and I met President Macron of France. He did sign off and, wow. let, and allow us to have our event and endorsed it. And at the time, the Australian Prime Minister was Malcolm Turnbull who endorsed it. And we did indeed have our event at the UN in, in, um, in 2018. And our pledge now has 140 signatories, which include some of the, uh, some of the biggest financial organisations all over the world, and they control more than 15 trillion Aussie dollars. So wow. we've got $15 trillion behind our pledge. And that journey, that story has given me some incredible learnings because I've been able to meet and learn from global leaders across the health sector, government, diplomacy, business and and across many different countries. And the nuances of dealing with the diplomacy required for that um, Mm. has been amazing.
0: Yeah. You mentioned the learnings and, again, I I draw people's attention to your website. Going first isn't the same as leading. That sounds like a lesson you've learned.
2: Absolutely. Absolutely. So, I mean, I've seen many organisations technically go first. You know, they've been the first to do something really good, but they haven't told anyone about it. They haven't publicised it and they haven't encouraged anybody to come with them on the journey. So going first is great, but leading is a different thing. Leading means doing something and actively trying to create a movement behind you. Because while it's wonderful for one person or one organisation to do something, there are many very big global challenges right now and one person, one group, one organisation cannot fix them. We Mm -hmm. need to create an entire wave behind us. So some people have, you know, been very happy to do things almost begrudgingly and say, yep, we've done it. We've done it. We've done whatever you wanted us to do but it's a completely different thing and it's a completely different set of skills that are required to be a genuine leader.
1: I watched um, a TEDx talk you did in 2017, if my memory serves me correctly. Was that your first foray into speaking or had you done a bit before then?
2: In the work I do, I do public speaking and presentations all the time, so every week. And um, and the TED talk was by far the biggest moment that I... Really? And, and the biggest audience and the, that you know,
0: before this well, podcast,
2: Jimmy. <laughs> Before the podcast. Yes. The TED Talk was just incredible. And I think for me, I, it's funny though, I think of it as my Olympics. I yeah. might not have <laughs> made the Olympics, but that for me was the Olympics. And the preparation for that was exactly like preparing for a 100-metre freestyle, which was my great, that was my best event. So as soon as I found out I'd been accepted to do a TED Talk and chosen for it, um, I had three months to prepare. And I worked with a performance coach who was an actress who helped me make sure that I would learn the best way to stand. Um, I'd have a few techniques on how to remember all my lines because mm-hmm. it's actually a pre-prepared talk. Yeah. Um, but there's no notes, there's no auto cue, there's nothing. And so, you know, she, she gave me really good techniques about how to, how to remember lines at different points. And to, it was almost like a little dance, like when I stepped backwards, that was my cue to say something and to, to do something. But you'll also find it interesting right beforehand when, you know, there was a crowd of 4,300 people there in Sydney. It was a big deal. They're all getting all psyched up and cheering and everything. And I was, you know, the nerves hit at that point. And the funniest thing I did was I jumped up and down and sort of slapped my arms around just like I was about (laughs) to go out for a 100 metre freestyle. Did and wearing the bathers on that You account? know what? I probably should have put them on. Well, at least was, a swimming cap. Yeah, but someone looked at me and said, what are you doing? Yeah. And it was like, I don't know. It just, I don't know where that came from. But I just sort of shook my hands and, you know, and so every skill that I had learnt to help me through the stress of elite sport was put into place again that day, more than 30 years later, to help get me on the stage for the TED Talk.
1: That's a fantastic comparison, and I can certainly say if, um, if anyone hasn't watched that TED Talk, I highly recommend going to um, uh, watch uh, Bronwyn's talk. You were incredibly passionate in that talk, and you were talking about, you know, the billions of lives that potentially could be saved, um, and it was a, a, obviously a very emotional and a very serious presentation, but there was one thing that really struck out for me, which was the uh, Canadian tobacco
2: ad. So this does need a visual, so I'm going to have to yeah. describe it for you. Yeah. But there was an ad that Health Canada... Uh, used a couple of years ago to try to reduce smoking rates and it is a picture of a cigarette it's just a very large picture of a cigarette but it's kind of bendy and a bit floppy
1: the word (laughs) impotent, impotent um it comes to mind
2: yes so they oh they put this um they put this ad on cigarette packs and, yeah, the first response of smokers when it was brought out was that they they rushed back to the shops and said, look, I don't want these ones. Can you just give me the ones that say they're going to kill me?
1: <laughs> <laughs> so so, so <laughs> men would rather, uh, rather be dead than impotent was the message. Yeah, yeah,
2: which is hilarious. And can I just say that in practice, in rehearsal, I had to do rehearsal the day before only one person out of 50 people in the audience at rehearsal laughed at that joke <laughs> and that and, and i was like oh my gosh do i take it out do i take yeah. out the joke but the truth is there are no more jokes in tobacco that's it there's none yeah. right and yeah. so i thought oh my gosh do i take this out and i did not sleep at all the night before that ted talk not at all and i knew i wouldn't so i slept very well the second and third night before the talk but that night i was up all night thinking do i take out the talk do i take out the joke yeah. and eventually i thought damn it i have Practise this so much, I'm going to do it. So I did it and everybody laughed. It was like, Of course they
0: did. There (laughs) may not be many uh, jokes in tobacco, but you've certainly brought an energy and an interest and an appeal to the subject and and clearly making a difference. As we turn the last lap and do that last 50 metres down the pool, tell us uh, what you get when you get Bronwyn King, whether it's online or whether it's live in front of a group of live people. Do you offer more than just a keynote?
2: So online offerings include, I mean, I'm happy to pre-record if people prefer that or a a live presentation. Of late, there's been um, a lot of demand for more of a a boardroom style, sort of a smaller style leadership uh, workshop. So I'm happy to do, you know, really whatever people, you know, whatever fits with their organisation. But sometimes it's been a, a keynote followed by a more intimate Um, uh, workshop where there's only, say, 20 people there, leaders in an organisation which allows for more Q&A, which is often, you know, a really good way to, you know, to to, to find out and and deep dive into what an organisation wants and, and what they are trying to achieve. At the moment, Um, the big thing that people are asking me at the moment is really for talks on influence and change, so much so that I'm starting to write a book on influence and change um, because I'm spending so much time working with different organisations, whatever that organisation is, trying to help them through a, a period of time where they're trying to do something different. And effectively, I have spent the last 10 years of my life encouraging people and influencing people to do things that they probably really don't want to do. They've never really thought that they're going to do the things that they're doing. So, for example, two of the top ten banks in the world, um, through the work that um, I've done with them, have decided to no longer um, finance tobacco companies. These are two of the top ten banks in the world. They never imagined that they were going to do that, but through really good, what I call diplomatic Um, discussions and diplomatic advocacy that has happened and so because of that sort of influence and change are really the key topics that um, have been high on the agenda of late and um, you know I'd be very happy to speak with people to create a really uh, great event or a a great roundtable for them.
1: Fantastic yeah Um, you have some remarkable testimonials on your website uh, bromwinking.com from the uh from the CEO of Telstra to royalty to some really heavy hitters in corporate Australia. So um, I encourage uh, you.
2: It is very important to have a princess on your team. I do recommend yeah. that oh, to I people. So, it. yeah, yeah that's, uh, I mean, that's really Influence 101. Make sure you have a princess.
0: Bronwyn, you may not have reached an Olympic goal, but clearly you've set other goals and you've brought so many people and resources along to it that uh, you must be very proud of yourself. Heaven help any of your kids if you ever catch them with a quick smoke in their hand but I'm sure that's not going to happen. Um, You
2: know what? I think it probably will because, you know, wouldn't that just be the ultimate thing to get up my nose? Oh, yeah. (laughs) Um, Yeah. So I I don't quite know what I'm going to do when that happens, but, oh, my goodness, you know, what a a crazy... What a dilemma that
0: will be. What a crazy
2: dilemma. Exactly.
0: But the the boardrooms that you've been spending time in for the last 10 years or so have clearly created fantastic learnings that you're very open to share now with a, a greater audience. So all the power to you.
2: Thank you very much and uh, thanks so much for having me on today.
1: If you'd like to find out more about Dr. Bronwyn King and all her speaking topics and those remarkable testimonials, please go to bronwynking.com.
0: That was Our Next Guest Is with Carson White from Leading Voice and your MC, Michael Pope. To hear more of our guests, you can find us on iTunes or simply visit www.ournextguestis.com.au. But until next time, let's take a break.